to, uh, to let's talk about worship. I appreciate that very much. You're welcome to move up closer if you feel so moved. I know that I don't really like people telling me where to sit, so I'm not going to be um, um, real bossy about that. But if you'd like to um, form a little more community up front, that would be nice. But meanwhile, I'll move out toward where you are, and then we'll kind of meet in the middle here. So feel free to, to move around if you choose. The, the idea of this first session, curator or explorer, came from uh, somewhere in an article I read recently. Somebody asked the question, is curator enough for a worship model, and should the explorer be in the part of it? And I'm sorry that I'm not giving credit to who said that, because I couldn't remember where it was, and I did a lot of Googling. Some of you probably Googled during the session to find it, but I couldn't find where I read that quote or read that question, and then it kind of got me thinking about that. But the whole idea of curator uh, comes from a couple of books that have been published in the last few years. Uh, one is called uh, The Art of Curating Worship, which is, a, which is a very good book, and the other is called Curating Worship. So these, both of these books have been kind of where that whole idea has come from, with the idea of, of worship curation. Um, that is an idea that's being tossed around a lot in some circles, and not at all in some others. So if you haven't heard that very much, then you're not, you're not left out. It's just not broad in some places, and it hasn't been talked about very much at all in some, some places. But I thought it would be helpful for us to talk about, to start out this afternoon, to say, uh, ask this question, what one word best encapsulates your vision, your mission, your responsibility, your calling, your goals, as a person ministering through music? So why don't you think about that for a second, and I would, um, if you don't mind, I'd like you just to kind of talk among yourselves for just, you know, a couple of, a minute or two here, and talk to somebody about what title, what would really give you, what would uh, roll all of the stuff you do, how could you be titled in a way that uh, really says what you are and what you do? Because a lot of times I think we find ourselves saying, well, my title is whatever, and then we say, you know, it's not really what I do, it's not really who I am, and you know, it's just what they give me, and we find ourselves defending our, um, you know, whatever, or taking apart or dissecting that. So why don't you think about that for a second and maybe talk among yourselves for this moment. So let's start out with that. Okay, as we kind of come back together and talk about that for a moment, what are some of the, without looking on the many titles that I got from some different research, what are some of the titles or some of the ideas that might um, really be possible, uh, good, good and accurate descriptions of who you are and what you do in your church? What, what did you come up with? Yes. Okay, worship facilitator. Okay. That's a lot of where we're headed kind of in this session. What else? Okay, okay. Servant. Okay, so music servant or worship servant or servant. Of
So the idea was that worship should somewhere how be uh, involved in that description. Yes. Okay. Okay. An enabler. All right. Reminder. Okay. We're there to whisper the cues and get people reminder of what it is and all those things. Yeah. A quiver. Okay. All right. Great. Well, I recently went back to a church that I had left uh, several years before. I was gone from a congregation that I had served for eight years. I was gone from there for three and a half years. And then I went back as the as a minister there, and they gave me a different title when I went back. And my title had been Minister of Music, and I was actually going to look up my title. I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's something like Minister of Worship. I think worship is first, and it may have music in there. I may just say worship. But I keep reminding myself as every once in a while I think about that title and I'm reminded that my, my vision is supposed to be broader. My work is supposed to be broader because of what they have asked me to do and because of their, the fact that they changed my title. Um, I was already doing that, I think, and I think I was feeling that that was part of what I should do, but I hadn't been enabled or uh, sent forth to do that. Nobody had commissioned me to do that. I just did. So I'm a big believer that titles do matter, and I think they do affect what we, how we think about ourselves, and they do um, affect how we minister, what difference it makes. Um, I had kind of, kind of a fun little experience. Uh, what are people who facilitate our music and worship most often called? And so this very, this first thing, first of all, the Methodists have done a good job of this. There are a bunch of articles that talk about what Methodists call themselves. And so if you're Methodist, the Methodists are quite uh, interested in what we call ourselves or what other people call ourselves. Uh, other denominations, not so much by any means. There's no paper trail, as it were, or electronic trail about that. But Baptist and Methodist response to the question, what is the title of the person who makes the majority of the musical decisions for your church? And you can see the, the different percentages here between Baptist and Methodist. And you can see in some places they're pretty close, in some places not so close at all. Music director uh, being the most, more than has the most, uh, the most likeness. So you can see that. From another Methodist survey that involved 109 churches, we believe the following. So that was quite a short a title that, because you can see there's a whole bunch of differences there. And you can imagine, though, as you read these different titles, you can imagine what the emphasis of that church might be or what, how that church might prioritize their worship. And you really do learn, I think, a lot about those congregations by actually just reading the title. So, very interesting stuff, I think. From another survey, what do we call those who lead in weekly worship? And some, some ideas were presiding minister, assisting manager, liturgist, celebrant, reader, servers, um, leader, pastor, lector, acolyte, and some of those things. So from this information, we might gather that titles mean a lot or that they don't mean very much at all. Um, I don't know what you do about those kind of things. And some of you are in very liturgical congregations and some of us not so much at all. But my idea here, and the, and the point of the article from which that information came, was mostly that we should call people whatever it is they're doing. Like the worships that we did earlier, we simply said reader and congregation, um, that kind of thing. So trying to be very specific about what it is we call people. My question is always, if a person who just drops in on a given Sunday wouldn't know what this means, then I should change it. Especially if it doesn't matter. So when I use terms like that, I would have to explain what that means. Sometimes I use that if my parents wouldn't understand it, then maybe I should do something differently. And that's not a, that's not a put down to my parents. It's just simply saying my parents come from a very one-track kind of background, and they have not worshipped in a lot of other places. So I try to think, are we explaining and are we saying what we really mean to say? And simple is always better. Um, for instance, little bitty things like I would, I would usually say reader and congregation instead of leader and people in a responsive reading because we're all part of the people, for instance. You know, we're all kind of in that group, and I try to you know, make sure that we only designate ourselves as the leader, and then we stay away from titles and lots of things like that. But those are just my, 
feelings and you don't have to, certainly don't have to believe that. So two significant books that have brought about this role to the forefront. Uh, I mentioned those two books and then you have some information if you want to look at those later. So what is the role of an art gallery curator? As we think about this whole idea of curation, what does that mean? Um, so what, what does it mean if you're an art gallery curator? We go on to describe that a little bit, but what does that mean and how might that apply to what we do as worship leader? If you were to be, um, imagine you're describing someone what a curator does in an art gallery or art museum, what, what kinds of things might a curator do? Yeah, Mark. It could depend on the mission of the gallery. Okay. It could very much depend on what the mission of this gallery or this museum or this collection is. It could very much depend on that. Yeah. So it would certainly be contextual. But, but what are some things that, that a that person might be responsible for doing? What are some broader things? Caretaker, okay, caring for something and making sure it's preserved and protected and where well um, presented even. What else? Okay, acquiring new things, collecting newer materials, yeah. Which kind of gets into our explorer idea, yeah. And so it kind of depends on where you come from and how you imagine that. What else did you think of? Yeah, okay, alright, so changing them out, yeah. And keeping them moving so people aren't seeing the same thing week to week or ever how often we might imagine whatever the statistics are. But in our, in our world, it's an every week thing. So our displays need to be moved around quite regularly. Yeah, yeah. And how do we, how do we present things? I'm a big believer that framing makes all the difference. Have you been to a frame shop lately? Have you bought any work of art or something and taken it to have it framed? Uh, I recently went on a trip to Kenya and I got a little bit carried away and I uh, bought two pieces of art from an artist that I met in Kenya a couple years ago. And I, uh, because I'm, I've, my students and children call me cheap, I didn't have them rolled up. I brought them back, you know, stretched and everything because it cost me $75 once to have something stretched again. And so anyway, I brought them back and then went to Hobby Lobby to have them framed. Well, I stayed at Hobby Lobby about two hours trying to figure out what frame will make this art pop, stand out, what will be true to it. What would be true to where it was created, but also connect its creation into the place that it's going to be, which is our home. And how do we make this loop, and how do we connect it with other things, and yet not make it the only African piece in the whole house and make it look odd? You see all those questions that you might ask just about framing something. But have you framed something, when you frame something differently, it changes everything. And then when you get into even things like color and matting and all that, it's a whole other thing. So I often think of worship as framing. How are we framing something? In what context are we framing it? The worship service that we just participated in a little bit ago, have any of you sung the song, um, uh, Oh Great God, Give Us Rest Before Today? Has anybody sung that? Something? Yeah, yes. If you listen to it on YouTube, it sounds quite a lot different. Yeah, if you listen to uh, David Crowder sing it, it had a very different feel. A, a good feel, a very good feel, but a different feel. But so what we did today was frame it differently. What about our singing today of Unstay? Okay. I had um, not ever done that with brass before. And I decided because we were recruiting so many people to do so many things that if I get a bunch of guitars and a drummer and we do all of that, then that's a whole other set of people to rehearse with. And then I thought, well, why shouldn't we just frame it differently? And what if we just use the brass? And what if we make it all different? And then we let that frame cause this piece to match with these other pieces when they wouldn't necessarily match otherwise. And then we display them in a different way and connect them in a different way. And then we use those readings to connect two other things and then do connect that into the rest idea and hopefully eventual rest in heaven. And, you know, but all of you see how that all came about as imagining art and how you align all this stuff and how you could connect it and not make it look like a, you know, a preschool display of what is your favorite picture, you know, or something like that. But that whole idea. So curators do all of those kinds of things. 
Um, how does this description stack up with some of the titles and the implied roles above? So do these roles that we just talked about and the way we describe ourselves, how does this curation idea stack up with that? That's a question we're kind of asking and one that we want to think about. Curate comes from the Latin, um, curare, which means to care for. A British website um, advertising the job of art curator says, a museum or gallery curator requires, cares for, develops, displays, and, and interprets a collection of artifacts or works of art in order to inform, educate, and entertain the public. And so that's a description or a, a, a definition. So how does this match up with what we do in our place? How does that match up with what you do and how you imagine yourself? I don't really have to answer that question, but I hope that you'll think about it. I'm also a big believer in that the way we imagine ourselves and our roles has everything to do with how we, how we actually carry them out. And I don't know about you, but summertime is a time when I am reimagining my roles. And I'm looking at all the things, not that some of them are ongoing in the summertime, but I have a little bit of space sometimes to think about them. I'm imagining who is it that I need to be? What, who is it that I need to be for the church this year? Who is it I need to be for my students? Who is it? What is my role? How can I imagine that? And how can I become the, the parts of that role that I need to be? I think one way that we learn that is by getting input. We're going to talk about that in a second. But letting other people, who do you see me as? What do you see me needing to do? I had a conversation with a former student last night, and I said, you know, I've never been this age before. And I'm not sure what I am supposed to be doing at this stage. And I need you to think about it and help me decide what I need, what do I really need to be, how do I need to be the best in my life? And who do I need to be? And what, what's the best thing for me to offer at this final stage of the sense, not final termination, but you know, a last third in terms of a working career kind of person. Who do I need to be? What do I need to be doing? Okay, moving on. Art is the medium. The question, what do we consider the artifact in, in the definition of or the work of art that we use in worship setting? So an answer might be any creation that can be seen, heard, tasted, touched, or smelled can be used in both a gallery setting and a worship setting. So I hope that can even expand a little bit. Something that can be heard, seen, tasted, touched, or smelled. Have you been in an, in an art gallery or any kind of museum that used smell as a part of um, a display? I was trying to remember if I haven't, I'm not sure. I have, certainly there's a, um, the Bob Bullock Museum in Austin, it, there's a spray of water that hits you somewhere in there. Um, there's different kinds of feel in different ways, but I'm not sure about smell. So smell is very under, Underused or underutilized worship. It's something we might want to think about. setting 
in which we can experience this story in the greatest way possible. Saturday, I did something very odd at this time with the conference coming up, but I took our son, our son is 15, and I went with Isaac to the Drum and Bugle Corps um, Southwest Championship in San Antonio. And we got back about 2 a.m., and that was pretty stupid um, for a conference coming up. But we went to the Drum and Bugle Corps contest on Saturday, and I had not been to a Drum and Bugle Corps contest since I was a band director back in the early 80s. So this is, I've watched a few videos, but, uh, or clips, I should say. But anyway, there was a lot of difference. But what I noticed was that all of these DCI shows, all these band, throwing uh, Google Corps shows, they were all about sensing something. And there were art pieces, and there were other props, and other kinds of things. And, and it was all, every single one, tried to tell a story, some more effectively than others. But they were all trying to draw us into a narrative. Now, some of us that are older people in the room, in our experience of bands, or drum and bugle course, things like that, the last thing we thought about when I was a band director in 1981 was telling a story. You know, we were entertaining the crowd and we were connecting pieces that had no theme, no likeness, no connection, nothing. We just had an opening number, and we had a this number, and we had a closer, and a drum feature, or something like that but we didn't think about connection. Okay. For us as people who are uh, academic choral people, we oftentimes think these days about making a concert flow and making it fit and making it tell a story and bringing people along through something. We didn't used to think that way. So you see how story has become so important in our narrative. So what does it say about worship? What kind of story are we weaving? Are we weaving or are we just juxtaposing? You see the difference? Are we stitching it together? I think in worship, the place where we most often miss out is in between. It's the stitching, it's the connection, it's the pulling one thing together. And that's not really what the session is about. But the worship that we did today, we tried to be intentional about how this connects with this and starting from here and moving to here instead of, you know, abrupt. You can be abrupt, but you must be intentionally abrupt if that's what you're trying to do. And it needs to be purposeful. So that whole idea of weaving the story. Another example, this morning our son was watching television and I was grabbing something for breakfast and there was this commercial that came on and I was intrigued by it because it had very uh, interesting, thoughtful music and it had some really great visuals. The visuals were wonderful, I thought. And I thought, what is this going to be advertised? See, these days, you know, you have to wait till the end of the advertisement to know what it's advertising because it, it isn't related really. It's about feel and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, went on and on. It seemed like a very long commercial, but it was advertising iPhones. And I don't know if you've seen that, but it has a, it has some, a couple of people dancing and it has a ballet person with a, you know, headphones on. It has a cool person. It has a kid, you know, doing some stuff. It has some people reflecting and, you know, all sorts of stuff. So Isaac said, that's a great commercial. He said, wow, that's a great commercial. And I said, well, Isaac, what did you like about it? What did you like about it? And he said, it just made me feel so good. And I said, well, how did it make you feel good, Isaac? You know, something with the dad who's thinking about, what does this have to do with worship? You know? And how does this all, you know, connect? But it was this whole system. And he said, well, because I do that. So when I play basketball, and there's a kid with a basketball on this, he said, I listen to, to headphones. He said, so I do that. I said, so you found yourself in that commercial. That was, was like you. He said, yeah. He said, it was just so peaceful. Okay. So what does it have to say about worship? And how are we using vignettes and images to, to create a story? And what at the end, you thought, you know, it didn't matter what this was. I would think I want one of those. You know, but, but the iPhone matched, and you, could, you, know, you, you knew it had something to do. I, I knew kind of where we were headed. Okay, well, an art gallery curator um, might place high value on entertaining those who come to, sh to, sh to the show. The worship curator places the highest value on edifying those who come to worship. The curator of worship does not seek to, enter, to provide entertainment uh, that the life will escape from present realities. Instead, the curator seeks to provide an opportunity to enter deeply into the reality and the nearness of God. And so my question is, then, how do we do that each week? 
how do we create a place where we can enter into the depth and the newness of God on a weekly basis? And that's not an easy thing. But let's head along and see if we find some answers as we keep going here. What uh, many contexts in creating meaning, so as a curator, uh, deeper experiences depend on context. So what about denominational context? What about ethnicity? What about economic situation, age, local tradition, cultural identity, all of that? I think that all worship is contextual. All worship needs to be specific to the place where it is being um, carried out and being offered. So whenever we take a worship experience, just completely, wholeheartedly take it and move it into another place, it doesn't feel right. Have you been in a congregation recently where you said in your own head, you know, I don't think this was this place. I think the person in charge took this from somewhere else and imposed it. I was in a worship service recently where I thought, this looks like, and I felt it filled in the blank because that person had been influenced by this other place, and I don't think it had anything to do with fitting it to the place where it's being offered. That's a long way away from saying it needs to match where you are and not be copied from somewhere else. So how do we do that? How do we know that? And how do we know when it doesn't fit? And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't know. But we must figure out that. So all worship is contextual. It must be within that local place and it must fit. The worship that we were part of today, why did we talk about rest today? And why did we sing about rest? And why did we try to let rest seep into this experience today. I'm, I'm tired, and I assume that you might be. <laughs> Together, and we're all hurrying to get as much as we can while we're here, and rather than being concerned about restoration and personal healing. So I became convicted that we needed to experience it. Also, we had a service at our church a couple weeks ago, about three or four weeks ago, that was about rest. And we did some of this stuff, and I got deeply into thinking about rest. And then I don't know if you, I, I do a blog once a month for Creator Magazine, and I wrote a reflection on that service and how I needed to rest and how I needed to hear that myself. And then I thought, well, maybe you, you need that, and I certainly need another refresher course. And so we decided to put this whole thing, but it was contextual. It was trying to imagine who's coming to this place and who do we need to be. And I was looking over the list of who's coming in. Some of you guys I know very well, and I was thinking, you know, I bet they're really as tired as I am. And um, we're all about the same age, you know, and I know we're all been doing this a long time. You know, too long to quit, but um, we're not done, you know. And trying to imagine all this context and, and who are we in all these places. Uh, Todd, I think you're right. So the message is huge. 
We are not poor here. I mean, for instance, you can't get past that. You can sing about the poor, but you know we're not they. Really, in, in the worldwide sense. Just things that we can't overcome. Now, you could be in our church, which is, we can probably maintain the popcorn, and that may be a little bit different, you know, maybe like your church, you have something that's quite tough to maintain sometimes. But a worship curator is a maker of context rather than a presenter of content. And that's a huge statement, I think, and one that I've been mulling over quite a bit lately. But many of us, most of us, believe that our role is to present context, our content. That we are just tell them what it is. I mean, how many people in your church say, you know, about things like money? If you'll just tell them to give, by golly, they would. You know, all you gotta do is just make it known and they'll do it. Well, not so much. Not for younger people, especially. But we are a creator of, of context, often rather than a presenter of content. And I think that's true, especially for younger people. Not so much maybe for my age and older. That younger people really are going to feel this message. And when we talk about the nonverbal thing, they're really going to be caught up in the nonverbal. They're really going to be caught up in what they believe is truly authentic. Whatever your content, be it scripture, poems, video, whole list of things, your role as a worship curator is to choose and organize these in a careful way so that something of the reality and story of God is communicated. So when you put all your pieces, here are all the pieces that we have. And what kind of order are you going to put them in? How are you going to situate them in such a way that a story emerges? And that's the way I think of worship planning, is what order do I put these things in? And what is the role of this? And where does this pivot into this? And how does that all fit? I don't know if you, how many of you listen or watch cooking shows. Um, some, some of you are already in the I know a lot, but I'm a big uh, National Public Radio fan. And, and I listen in sometimes. I think there's one day a week where they have this they take these free ingredients or something that you have in your pantry and they, some famous chef tells you how to use those free ingredients into something meaningful. Okay. So I think that worship planning is often much more like how I grew up on the farm, um, about 15 miles or so from town, which in the 60s was a long way from town, and isn't these days. But we cooked at our home by what we had the question is, what do we have, then what are we going to cook? Not, what shall we cook, and then we go buy. You see the difference? You cook what you have, and if you have the same thing in your pantry or in your garden, and you keep cooking the same thing, but how many ways can you fix black eyed peas and still enjoy them in the summertime? Or whatever. And really creative country people can take the same ingredients and just make amazing food out of them time after time by changing you know, I always said, my, my grandmother had like six different kinds of cornbread she made. She always had cornbread, but we never thought of it as the same. But she shaped it differently, and one was had water, and one had milk, and one had eggs, and you know, all kinds of stuff. You see what I'm saying? So worship is about using what you have, but shaping it differently, rather than having the opportunity and the ability to hire whatever it is, or to go out and buy all the pieces, and then put your meal and I think that's part of what this curation idea really is. Okay, uh, looking quickly ahead, um, every curation uh, choice, and you have several of them there, uh, is actually crafted, is actually should be created in a particular context for worship. Um, these choices also create how new meaning is artistic elements that may mean one thing when experienced alone, but can communicate something very different when experienced together. So you can take a song, a scripture, uh, any of things, and you can put it in a different context and then suddenly it means something very different and it takes on a different shape. Um, Love Divine All Was Excelling, to me, today took on a different shape and a different meaning than it might take had we used it as the first thing in worship. When we said cast our crowns before the, we were saying, in the bigger context of things, this is where we're going, this is what is going to be happening to us ultimately. But it could have meant, the song could have been shaped around the theme of love, and it could have had a whole different idea, so cast in a different context. Um, the last, um, for most of the worship service, where are we? I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong one. 
Uh, what all this boils down to is that near the top of the worst of curator skills should be the ability to understand one's own cultural context and how to speak well to that context through artistic needs. And how do we do this? Uh, we know the people. Uh, what are the cultural clues that we look for? And how do we know what those are? Um, how subtle or not are people? Uh, how do people dress? Um, what is their educational level? What's their background? Where have they been in the past? And then what is our role in that? And our role is to take all those stories and all those contexts and then to put them all together in a meaningful way. And that's what this will do. So what else makes a curator unique? Unlike the upfront and very visible role of priest, preacher, and performer in music, uh, the curator, uh, if the curator does his or, job, his or her job well, the leader is often invisible. So how might the leader be invisible? Have you thought of that? After I put this presentation together, I've been thinking a lot about that. How invisible am I? How invisible should I be? Does that mean I'm just not ever on the platform? Or does it mean more than that? Yes? in essence God did, but sometimes we step up and, you know, God would have a hard time getting credit because we've been so visible. Yeah. One of the things was when people say, you make this look so easy. A few weeks ago somebody after church said, you know, this, this worship really looks easy when you read it. It just looks so, you know, I'm sure it must not be always that way. And I'm not sure I'm going to set pieces, but I'm that. But I took that as a big compliment. I was thankful that if, if it didn't feel that way, at least appear that way. And most of the time it is, you know, most of the time it's true. But ways for us to be minimized so that God can be magnified. One thing today, I, the person working in the sound, I said, I really don't want you to hear me. I said, they don't, this group doesn't need to hear me. They can sing it. You know, they don't need me to be singing out loud. And so I, you know, those kind of things where you think about it differently. Who is leading a particular piece? Do you have to be the one conducting it all the time? Do you have to be the one leading it? If, you, if it's group-led, then let the group, become a part of the group, step back away, or middle ground, or all those different kinds of ways that you might do that. But how do we look at this one? I'm challenged by that, actually. And I'm going to be exploring ways to step, I don't know if I'm going to step out or I'm just going to be out. I don't know what I'm going to do with that. But I'm, I'm really challenged to figure out ways to not be the circus ring leader so much. You know, not be just the one right there in the middle of everything quite so much. You know, I've asked someone, I think another is that if they were sure they In the session we're going to talk about nonverbal communication, we're going to get into that a bit more and how we, how we might do that and how we might be more effectively leading in some of those kinds of ways without saying so much. My role is can I do a whole worship service and never speak? And then when I do speak, why do I have to speak and could I have not done that? Doesn't mean that I wouldn't speak, but if I do, I should do it with intentionality, not because I to hear myself or whatever, or because I didn't plan. We all have those moments where you know, the only way to get it to work is to say it because you know, no 
nobody else knows what I'm thinking. <laughs> you know, uh, that kind of thing. But anyway, those are good things to think about. And I, I've been challenged by that. Very much challenged by that. Um, well, the performative music leads with a single uh, with a single primary meaning. The curator is a purveyor and promoter of any and all media forms. So that we're not just the one with an instrument, or we're not just the person who have an instrument or whatever, but we're the one that empowers all the different pieces that are around us. And what are all those pieces and how do we empower them? And how do we entrust them? Really so many times it comes down again to power and control. We don't really trust other people. You know, did I trust Whip to start the right tempo today? Did I trust the viola player to start the right tempo? And what would I do if she didn't? She plays in our church and I absolutely trust her. She's so, so smart and, and perceptive and so in the moment in worship. And she does know what to do. But, but how do we do that? How do we trust others without counting her off? And what might it have been different had I looked at her and you know, counted her off rather than just let her be all those kinds of things. If a preacher tells the story of God with words alone, the curator often uses new media, digital, digital fusion of words, images, and sound in a format that that um, format that invites interactivity. What might this look like? Uh, last year, some of you were here with Leonard Sweet, and he talked a lot about media and how media is integrated and all that kind of stuff. I haven't done very much with that, to be honest, but I thought about it a lot. You know, and if you don't think about it, you certainly want to do anything about it, but I thought about it a whole lot, and I'm not in a place where we have the option of using a bunch of media, but if I were, what would I do? And how could I do that without media? How could I take the same idea? See, so many times we, somebody has an idea that we say, we immediately mix that and say, can't do that, I don't have that in my church. Well, how could you take the same idea and infuse it in some way, even with a whole different contextual reality? What might you do for that? Uh, for, for most of worship, uh, priest is positioned to lead from the physical center or worship space. In contrast, the curator leads the action from the periphery. And how could we do this? How could we lead from the edges? And we'll, we'll be talking about this some, but how can we do that? How can we just simply be on the edges? The curator largely organizes and presents the work of others, and in so doing promotes a shared leadership of worship. This approach is not a hallmark of any other historical leaders to save the people of God from the early church. And so, in no, no worship place in history do we really have this model, except just when the people lead from themselves. So it's really, in a, in a sense, a new model. It's a, it's a different model than most of us have been trained. And I will tell you, frankly, some people will feel a little bit uncomfortable sometimes when you're not being very verbal and telling them what to do. Particularly, again, I'm not picking on older people, but older, older people really want you to be very direct and tell them what to do, rather than kind of leading them along. Because a lot of times, uh, again, we're studying the nonverbal stuff, we find that older people are not such astute readers, or not as astute readers, of nonverbal communication as younger people. And younger people really, really watch nonverbal communication. And they'll write you off just like that if they, you kind of look at them in a way that they perceive as not uh, encouraging and uh, that sort of that's true for the children in our home. <laughs> I don't know about yours. Yes, Mark. I think on the other hand, it strikes me that um, when you talk about the praying, that often in the use of verbal, uh, I find that younger generations need more verbal praying to the why they're doing this, whereas the older generations can take, take the art as it is. Yeah. 
What we may often think about, maybe this is something here about verbal framing also, and how do we do that well. And maybe some of us have been so much not beautiful verbal framing that we kind of reacted in opposition. in all those scripture passages that were about eight or nine or something like that. And I just Googled scriptures about rest or something like that, you know, and picked out a bunch of them. But they were all, they could have been contextually different, right? We could have talked about creation. We could have talked about great pastures, you know, or, um, we could talk about any number of things. But set in that rest context, we had, we put them in a different place and put them in a different but interestingly, it would be, you might want to know that I didn't write the, the prayer that they did at the beginning, the all hell the power and the connection of the confession into that. I asked, I sent the two students an email and I said, could you all put together a prayer? Here's what I'm imagining. Could you take the text of this and could you do something with this? And they, last night, just said, well, this worked. And I said, this is great. I love this. It's really, really good. See, the truth is, I don't think I could have done that as well as they really done. I, mean, I was so pleased with what they did with that. But could people in your church do that? So last Sunday I asked a woman to, to pray. I, we only have another person who does prayer, prayers. But new system, she retired, and now it's in the worship team to do this, which I think is going to be better. I listened to the person who this, so I said, here is the hymn that precedes your prayer. Here's the, here's the text of what follows. Well, she came Sunday with just this amazing prayer. And all I did was say, I thought you might want to know, here's where this fits. And she did it so, so well. And she's, you know, she had been a seminary or anything like that. She just thinks. Yeah. So it doesn't always work. You know, so, but, but sometimes it does beautiful. Let's move on. Exploring, um, ex considering explorer as a model. Are the implications of curator adequate as a worship leadership model? How might explore expand curator's implications? And the whole idea of a new song, singing a new song, exploring, going into new territory. Uh, explorer of what would be a question. In what ways is worship leadership similar to guiding people on an expedition to places not yet traveled? I like worship as a travel analogy. Um, I think that worship, I often think of worship as a, in the context of travel. Uh, when, where, how long? Depending on your congregation, you can take them to different places. And depending on the trust level that you have with a congregation, you can take them further and further away from home, and they will trust you to get them back. My rule in worship is you always have to take people home by the end. You never leave them out in the wilderness. And as long as they know that you'll bring them back home. Some people, I learned this with senior adult choirs years ago, but some people will go and spend the night. And there's some people, they will not stay overnight. They will go as far as you can go for a day, but by golly, they're going to be in their bed at night time. End of discussion. Okay. And you need to know who these people are in your congregation who figuratively will not travel overnight. And they will only go so far. And every once in a while, you can take everybody else and leave them at home, but you can't leave them every week. See, because they're belonging in this congregation too. So the travel analogy, how fast can you go, where can you travel? See all these questions that you ask if you think of it just in an analogous way. In what ways is worship leadership similar to guiding people? Uh, we said that already. To take the church into the world, a place where we often find God, a missional place, we must be brave in our leadership and willing to explore yet to be discovered ways of doing things. So, how can we be missional? How can we reach into the world? In the, the book, um, the new book from Memory to Imagination, that um, Hope you will pick up a copy of. There's a whole section, a whole chapter on being missional and how worship, how music can be missional. 
because I think that's unexplored. And if you ask me how to do that in the local context, I will tell you I'm working on it. Okay. I'm thinking, I'm imagining, I'm trying to think how do we take worship, how do we take music, really take it into the world in ways other than going to the nursing home and singing in the park once a year. And I mean, that's good. That's a great step. But what's step two and step three? Where, how do we really do it? So we need models for that. But how do, how do we do that? How do we take it into the world? And we have to be brave to do that. In addition to preserving culture, we must also interact with culture as it has happened. Okay, so the interaction. We must go where the people are and interact with them through music and other art forms. And that's a place where I'm not sure that the curator model really quite connects, except that a curator certainly could visit art shows and those kind of things. And, you know, places where people are making maybe more grainy kinds of things. But how does that work and how, how might it happen? How does the curator model and explorer ideas stack up against the maintenance versus visual model? Um, that's a struggle with most of our churches. What roles are we going to play? How do we move forward? What is the maintenance versus visual model? Have any of your churches had those kind of discussions? Are we maintenance or visual?
but some that letting the past inform us and being in touch with the past, but also having this turn toward. It's a constant shift, and it's something we have to have others to help us know whether we're being balanced or not. We don't always have to be balanced. That's a misnomer, too. Not all of them have to be balanced. Yeah. If it is, most of us are in a mess. Because I don't know if you're always balanced or not, but I'm not. Well, the term worship curator or worship explorer might never be anyone's title, they give us new ways to imagine what we do. Memory and imagination have both have a place in the church. Memory is the foundation on which all imagination rests. And I believe that. I believe that memory helps us, launches us into imaginative ways. The book has a lot of stuff about that in it, but I think that we are most creative when we have a strong memory. And people who have a lot to remember can also have a lot to build on. So one of the places is we try to be created by being new gimmicks and things rather than create a solid foundation. And then that can launch us often into, into imagination. Getting started. So things that we might do to start here. One is notice neglected details. Uh, things of hospitality, transitions, lighting, before and after music, temperature. All those kinds of things might help us to be a better, a better, a better worship leader and a better curator, particularly. So, what does that mean? What, what do we mean by hospitality? Whether we're welcoming the stranger, whether people are comfortable, whether they're feeling good about this, whether this is followable, whether they have the tools in their hands, whether they know to use the hymnal, whether they have all the pieces here that they need, just things like that. Welcoming all those kinds of things. Promote diversity. How many leaders are we always up front? Where should or could we be in worship? Are we always ones? Get to know artists. Who is presently in your church? How might they contribute? Commission them. Involve others in searches for music and art. But knowing the people in your church, that you can't just know them by what they do today. You can't just say, um, Cheryl is a retired teacher now, musician in the church. Well, there's more to her than that. She has a past. I know she plays the piano. I've heard her play the piano. I know she dabbles with the organ. I know she can do other things. And I haven't seen Cheryl in 14 years. You see, but if she moved to our congregation, I have some past knowledge about her that I would, it would help me to know who she is. But the more you know about people, you know that he used to, he has, whatever. And you know the story, and you can bring forward something from them that you might not know otherwise. So get to know people. How dependent is your congregation on your leadership presence? How can you enlist and empower others in order for you to become uh, more invisible? And that's worth considering. I missed church a few times this summer because I was supposed to be taking some time to be a healthy person instead of being in church every Sunday. And some people were helping me to not be there. But they said, it was really different when you're not here. And so I don't know what that means because I wasn't there when I wasn't there. Okay. But they said it was different, and I, I don't think they did altogether. It was better. I hope that's not what they did. But what does that mean, and how do we become more invisible? How do your gestures and your nonverbal communication exhibit a shared leadership style? That's a really big issue, and one we're going to talk about. But I think sometimes our nonverbal communication in worship tells people that I want to be. Maybe not you, but maybe some people ask you to leave worship. I intend to be everything here. There's, there's that worship out there. What percentage of you leans toward curator? What percentage of you leans toward discoverer? How might you shift a few percentage points each year to create a better balance? I'm a big believer that we don't have to say, here I am, now I will be here tomorrow. But how might I shift a little bit? About uh, two years ago, I was in a, a church staff, and the church staff decided that there were some things I should do differently. Okay. And I trusted them, even though I was paying. Okay. So my word to them was, if you'll give me a year, I think you'll see some changes. But I can't change for next week and feel authentic. If I can't feel authentic about it, I can't do it. But if you'll give me a year, I think you can see some slow, gradual shifts that will be discernible. So can you do that? 
So I like to think that I could move a little bit over a long period of time, and then I could own the change rather than feeling like, oh my gosh, I have to be the person who is all different. And I would encourage you to consider that model. You see, we, we, this is probably not the, for most of us, we're not the only tyrant. We've got a little time. And so what have we changed in, in a longer period of time? The last thing, institutions resemble their leaders. How does the congreg your congregation look like you? Uh, is this a healthy resemblance? Why or why not? Are they modeling your best qualities? You know, you, you see your children and you say, do they look like me? Or do they just simply model all of my negative qualities? Yeah. What about your church? How does it look like you? And how does it resemble you both positively and not? What parts of you should not be modeled? Okay. And how do you make up for your, your liabilities? And then my last word here is team. I'm underlying a bunch of times that we have to have a team and not just be about us. Our time is up, and I meant to have at least some time for questions, but if you come back for another session, I'll pass it in the classroom. Thank you very much. I'd be happy to talk with you individually. I don't want you to visit Dr. Pepper Flex, because that's probably more of the reason.